All right, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. I know great, great fellowship going on. If we can take our seats, we'll get going. Um, again, g- good morning. Um, if, yes, if you're, if you're looking up here and uh, you're wondering if this man is one of the pastors, I am not. Uh, my name is Patrick Levy. Um, I have um, had the, the privilege of um, attending Village Bible Church for, for my entire life, being able to serve here. Um, I love this church body and, and again, I've, I've enjoyed getting to serve in a number of uh, teaching roles. And so I'm really excited to, to have the, the weighty honor to be up here today and to, to lead our discussion um, and study of, of today's passage. Um, today we're going to be continuing along in our series in the Psalms. Uh, we'll be covering Psalm 51. Um, probably a, a well-known uh, psalm to, to many of you, something that you're familiar with. Probably not necessarily a fan favorite, not one that is going to be found on a lot of coffee mugs, um, because it deals with sin um, and, and how that affects our relationship with God. But again, with the familiarity, sometimes when we come to passages that are familiar, it's easy to kind of tune it out because we know it, we've read it before, and I would just ask that we... Um, we we try not to do that today, that we come to this text um, with fresh eyes, looking to see what the Spirit has for us today. Um, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 51. Um, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, there are black hardcover Bibles in the seats beneath you. Um, if you don't have one at home, please feel free to take that home um, as our, our gift to you so that you can have God's Word. Begin in Psalm 51, and we will read through the whole psalm together. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice." Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time that we have to publicly um, 
read and study your word together. Um, We give you thanks for that. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a work in us today, that you would um, prepare our hearts for the study we're about to do, that you would convict uh, of sin. Um, And as we as we prayed earlier, Lord, that for those that need to be convicted, that we would feel that. And for those that need to be encouraged by this message as well, that we would we would find encouragement. We also pray for um, our, our high schoolers who are on their way to Wildwood. God, we ask for safe travels up there and and more importantly, for a, a great week of, of studying you, of spending time in your word. Um, and we just pray for good spiritual growth and good development of community within the group. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, in our introduction to the Psalms, Pastor Ron explained the different categories that we have when, when dealing with, with the Psalms. And, and 51 here is considered a, a penitential psalm or a psalm of repentance. Um, we, we see that because it, it focused specifically on a prayer for mercy and forgiveness from sins committed. And, and we'll, we'll read a little more about that today, that being from the life of David. Um, it, it is unique in that sense in that it's, it's one of the few, as, as we look at the Psalms, we don't always know the exact situation uh, for why it was written. Um, but, but this one in our title here does explain to us the, the situation going on and what it was written uh, in response to. And that being, as I said, uh, a Psalm of David after He's, he's confronted by Nathan following his situation with Bathsheba. Um, this means that nowhere, well, we'll see that nowhere in the psalm does it directly reference the, these incidents. But again, we know from the title, which, which leads us to believe that not only is this a personal prayer for David, um, crying out to God, but also a model of prayer for us on how we should respond to God um, in, in, in our sin. Um, we're talking about sin, just to define the terms. Anything we say, do, and think that is contrary to God's commands. That includes doing things that he has commanded us not to do or failing to do things that he has commanded us to do. Um, and the Bible references sin in multiple ways, including rebellion to God. And so what we're talking about here is something to, to take very seriously. And again, we'll, we'll see some specific examples there. Um, Again, I lo- love this psalm, not necessarily because it's so uplifting, although I do think there are some uplifting aspects to it, as we'll, we'll see in the, the later sections. But um, I think when, when we think about prayer and how we approach God, uh, a helpful acronym that, that I like to use is, is ACTS. Um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That these are things that should be present in our prayer life, in how we um, speak to God. And, and I think if we're honest, we're really... We, we sometimes struggle with the confession aspect, right? We're, we're good at the adoration. We love to praise God for his goodness. We love to thank him, to think about all the ways that he has blessed us and to respond with that. Supplication, of course, we, we bring our requests before him, praying for, for our needs or the needs of those around us. These are regular parts. But, but when it comes to confession, again, I think if we're, if we're honest, we don't like to feel bad. We don't like to, to think about these things that, that make us feel guilty. Um, and, and again, that's why I'm excited for this, uh, for today's passage. So I think it's a powerful example, reminder for us and how we should have a right view um, in terms of our sin. Um, again, we, we do have the specific situation. So I want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We will um, kind of quickly read through this. We won't read through the, the entire section. I encourage you to do that on your own. But I do want to give us, uh, again, some, some context for why David is responding in, in, in this way. 
And as, as you turn there, again, this is about King David. At this point, David is king, arguably at the height of his power and his wisdom. Um, we, we see earlier in 1 Samuel 13, 14, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And again, we see him faithfully following God. And as a result, God blesses him. Um, he uses him to defeat Israelites' enemies, helps him to capture Jerusalem, the city of David. And again, he is, he's in kingship at this point. 2 Samuel 11, we'll start at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rebah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So again, we have this situation where the men are, are away at war. Um, we see David sees this beautiful woman. She's the wife of Uriah. Uh, interesting note about Uriah. He is mentioned as one of David's mighty warriors. So one of his fiercest and, and really most loyal um, soldiers here is it, it's, uh, his, his wife. And again, men are off, off at war. And we see the situation where he calls her to him. And, and obviously they, they have sex and, and she conceives. Um, now some people have debated, well, what's, what's the situation going on here? Was this, are we talking about rape? Was Bathsheba complicit in this? So there's 50-50 blame. What, what's going on here? Um, I, I think the point of this is that when the king calls, you answer. Um, when he requests, you obey. And we see David is the one here in the, the, pow, the, the seat of power as king. Um, and he commits this sin. And we'll see that the focus is going to be on, on what, what he has done in this situation. In the next section, uh, verses 6 through 13, we see David begins a cover-up plan, okay? She's pregnant. She's still married. I'm king. What are we going to do here? And so first he tries calling Uriah home, um, tries to get him to go home, right? Go home, enjoy some time with, with your wife, and thinking maybe they'll sleep together, and then she'll, he'll, he'll think that the baby's his. Well, Uriah is a very noble man. Um, he says, I will not do that while my comrades are out fighting on the battlefield. I'm not, I'm not going to go home and enjoy being at home with my wife. So David takes a step further. Let's get him drunk. Let's see if maybe then he'll kind of stumble back into his house. That still doesn't work. So David comes up with an alternative plan. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And so again, David orchestrates the death of Uriah through battle, and we'll see in the next section, if you read through that, that it goes through successfully in David's mind. Verse 26, we see the aftermath. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so, we, again, we see the response. Uh, to, to David, this is mission success, right? He has covered up the situation. He ends up getting to marry Bathsheba. And, and it's, 
very interesting to know, we read over it very quickly, but in those verses, nine to ten months go by, right? She, con- she conceives and then she bears him a son at this point. And we see this period, really, of, of unrepentant um, sin. But again, we see that this displeased the Lord. And in, in chapter 12, we're going to see God's response. Verse 12, And the Lord said, Nathan, Nathan the prophet to David, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, uh, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And so we see Nathan comes and he tells David, let me tell you a little story. Um, David hears the story, he responds in outrage, as, as he, he should, um, by this situation. A um, couple things to, to notice. You notice that he, he points out that uh, that the man should restore the lamb fourfold. That was uh, something that was listed in the biblical um, law, in the Mosaic law. In Exodus 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for a sheep. Okay, so that would have been the biblical response to um, this type of offense. I do find it interesting that David does take it one step further and saying that this man deserves to die. Okay? Which again would, would not have been the biblical response to this type of situation, but just kind of interesting to note how outraged we can be at the sins of others and all the time we're seeing that he is not recognizing his own sin and not recognizing that, as we'll see, he is the one in the story. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man in the story. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. He goes on to explain these things that he has done to him, and yet he has committed this sin. Let's get back to verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And so again, make no mistake, just because David wasn't the one plunging the, the, the knife into uh, Uriah does not mean that he isn't guilty of murder. He orchestrated this situation. This was part of his plan. Um, and he has committed murder, and as God points out, adultery in this situation, despising the word of the Lord. We also see some of the consequences that are going to occur as a result of this sin. And if, if you read on in the story, the, these things all come true. Um, no surprise there. Uh, but we see his, his sons, uh, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah will die by the sword. And these things will go through. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And so again, uh, we, we see initially some, some genuine repentance, recognition of what is going on in David's short response there, recognizing that he has sinned. And we see God is going to spare David. He's going to spare David. He's not going to take his life. But there are going to be additional consequences, in, including the fact that this baby um, will will die. And we see that occurs uh, as as we read on. But again, that that's the context. That's the situation for that, that sets up Psalm 51. And here we see David's response. Um, so in, in your, your notes, the, the header section says, David is confronted about his sins, and he responds by recognizing his need for God's merciful and restorative hand. Okay? That, that'll be kind of the, the theme of, of today's passage. First point in your notes, uh, David appeals to God's merciful and loving nature to cleanse him of his sin. David appeals to God's merciful and loving nature to cleanse him of his sin. So again, he responds, begins this by asking God to adopt a merciful attitude towards him. And just again, to, to kind of define the terms, I think sometimes the word mercy, we, we can confuse it with other words, especially grace. Um, so we're talking about mercy. Um, mercy, or, or kind of a helpful way to, to think about this is, is mercy is not getting you do deserve grace is getting something that you don't deserve okay so example child gets an f and his parents buy him ice cream that's grace right he did not deserve the ice cream but he's receiving it Uh, mercy would be he gets the f in math and he does not get grounded he does not get punished that's mercy he's not getting something or he's spared from something that he is deserving of so again david responds with this the request for God to have a merciful attitude towards him. And he does this by pointing to, to two characteristics uh, of God. He points or, or really appeals to his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. Because of his love for us, he shows us compassion by being merciful, which is the action um, towards us. Um, the, the word for, for love here is, is besed, which can also be, be also has the, the idea of loyalty involved. And these characteristics of love and compassion are seen in God's covenant with Israel. Let me see that a little bit in Exodus 34. Saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Although he continues, that though God is loving and merciful, he also deals with the iniquity and the sins of the world. He is just and must address the sins. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as well. So again, we'll read these um, first, first couple verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. In verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. And so verse 2 continues these thoughts as he asks for specific actions. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my immoral behavior, these, the, the sin that I've committed and cleanse me. He recognizes that he has acted in this sinful way, and as a result, he is dirty. His sin has made him dirty, and he has need of cleaning from an almighty God. The next section we'll read uh, for your point number two in your notes for verses three through six. Acknowledging our sins is a prerequisite for restoration with God. Blank being there, a prerequisite. And so again, in the next few verses, David's not only going to continue to point out his, the recognition of this sin, but he's going to speak to how extensive his sin is and how big 
of a deal is. And this is the first step in the process, right? If David doesn't come before God and acknowledge his sin, there's no song, right? There's no response. Um, but, but he recognizes this, which is why he's writing. He's begging for mercy and restoration. And, and we don't do this if we don't think we did anything wrong. We think of example with kids, right? We make kids say that they're sorry, and they say, I'm sorry, and what are you sorry for? I don't know. I'm supposed to say it, and I'm sorry, right? That's not, that's not restoring the relationship, okay, when, when, you, when you respond in that way. Because you don't think that there's anything to really, I didn't really do anything. I, didn't really, I don't really need to restore this relationship. We're still fine. I'm still fine. Whatever. But no. So this is a, a prerequisite for, for res- being restored in our relationship with God. Verse 3. The, verse 3 we see. Uh, excuse me again. I had my notes. Um, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David, again, he says, God, I know what my sins are. They're right here in front of me. I can't get away from them. I see the result of them. I see the consequences. They are right here. And he knows that he's in this situation because of his wrongdoing. He's not playing the blame game. He's not pointing elsewhere. He's not rationalizing sin. He's saying, I know them. They are right here in front of me. Verse 4, we have kind of interesting I'm not against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Um, it, it is interesting because we, we think, well, wait a second. Okay, yes, David sinned against God, but didn't he also sin against Uriah, you know, who's dead and Bathsheba, who lost her husband and is, is you know, now, now part of this, this situation with, with adultery. Didn't he also sin um, against them? And, and while it's while it's true that that yes, his sin has affected them, he knows that ultimately he is going to stand before Almighty God. God is the one who is going to judge his sins. He's not going to stand before Uriah. He's not going to stand before Bathsheba. Um, he's not going to stand before Israel, whose sins have also affected. But he is going to be judged by the one true God. And then at, at the end of it, he, he goes on to affirm that God is right to give judgment to a sin. Lord, you could blot me out and you would be totally justified, right? That is a, a, a proper and, and right understanding of our sin. I have sinned against an, a holy God. I have messed up. Again, no, no rationalization, no minimizing the sin, but saying you would be right to do this because you are just and you must deal with sin. But again, he's asking for God to adopt a merciful attitude towards him. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And this is also an interesting one because some have said, okay, well, he was conceived in sin. Does this mean that his parents were dealing with a sin, sinful situation? You know, was he born out of wedlock? Is that what we're talking about here? And, and, and it doesn't seem like there's, there's any evidence that that's what he's referring to. That It's not referring to his parents' specific sin, but he's more making a, a theological statement about how we are born sinful. And Paul talks about this in, in, in Romans 5, um, recognizing that um, sin came into the world, right, in Genesis 3, through Adam and Eve's sin. In Romans 5, 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, of course, he's going to respond to that by saying, now through Christ, that we have the forgiveness of, of sins. But... Um, but again, he's, he's making more of a point that our sin is imputed on us through the bloodline of Adam, that we are born 
and this sinful condition. Um, so from the very point of, of, of conception. Um, do you want to just know, we, we want to be careful of this, to, to not use this truth as a way to normalize sin. I think that's often our response is to say, oh, well, I was born a sinner. I was born this way. This is just how I act. So it's, it's pretty, pretty normal. And, and again, while, while it's, it's true that this, that, that we, we are born with a sin nature, um, it should not normalize the situation. Again, we've seen that this, the sins that we commit separate us from a holy God, an infinite God, who is set apart, and that is a big deal. Of course, we have a response to that, which we'll, which we'll get to. Um, go to verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So again, David highlights the inner being here, um, the importance of having wisdom. I think what he's pointing out here is that from our heart, right, it's important that we have that wisdom, that truth in our inner being um, because our actions flow out from that. Our actions flow out from what is in our heart. That's why when we when we accidentally say a bad word or we say something mean, we always say like, I, oh, it slipped, right? And it didn't really slip, though, because that came from our heart, right? That, that's why it came out in, in our words, in our actions, because we were thinking it and we were feeling it. And so, again, the, the importance is not just on the outer actions, Lord, help my outer actions to be good, but to say, in my inward being, I need to be renewed. My inward being needs to be filled with your wisdom, your truth, to guide me, to guide my actions. Point number three in your notes, God alone is able to cleanse us from sin. God alone is able to cleanse us from sin. See in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, and so we see that this mention of, of hyssop, and you know, we can kind of stop and think, well, what, what is hyssop? Sounds like some kind of syrup, maybe some kind of essential oil type of thing, right? We, we know that well. Um, but, but what it actually is, is it's a plant. And I think we have a picture up here just to give us kind of an idea of this. Um, hyssop was, was a plant um, that we u- was used in times of purification, um, often called the desert lavender. Um, was common to, to the area, or, or still is common to the area. And we see it multiple times in, in Scripture. Um, the, the first place we see it is in Exodus chapter 12, um, with, with the situation with the Passover. Um, as the Lord is preparing to bring down this final plague um, on Egypt to, to kill the firstborns, he gives instructions to the Israelites, um, and he commands them in Exodus 12:22, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Let me back up. He, he, he gives instructions for sacrificing a, a lamb, to take the sacrificial lamb, and from here he's, he's giving specific examples for what to do with the blood of that lamb. Um, again, he says, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Um, and then again, we, we see in the next few, few verses, the explanation for this is that when the Lord comes over and he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will pass over, which is where we get Passover, um, pass over and not harm them. And so again, using that to uh, put the blood on the doorpost. We also see this in Leviticus 14. We won't turn there, but I encourage you to, to look at that um, on your own. But um, it was used in, in some different laws for, again, cleansing, specifically laws related to if somebody had leprosy or if there was a disease in the house. Um, the, 
a bird would be sacrificed and the blood would be taken and using the hyssop branches would be sprinkled on the afflicted person or the afflicted house um, after it was, it was shown that, that that person was clean. So if a person had leprosy, they are cleansed of it. Um, they no longer have it. The priest comes out, dips the blood, sprinkles it on them as a way of signifying clean, right? Um, you, you're now clean. And same with, with the house situation. So again, Leviticus 14, if you want to take a look at that on your own. Um, I'll just point out one other quick one. And at the crucifixion, very interesting, we also see that Jesus, right as he was about to, to die, to give up his spirit, um, John 19, 20 through 30, it says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour vine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so also potentially being a symbolism there for now, how Jesus' blood is going to be sprinkled on us um, as a way of, of cleansing us. Verse 7, um, towards the, the, the last half, David expands on, on this idea by saying that if God so chooses, he can cleanse him to be whiter than snow, which is a good imagery for us. That when we think about fresh snow, there's, there's nothing, I don't know if there's anything whiter that we can imagine, nothing pure. It's, it's even like a bright white. Um, and that's the image of, of how clean God can make us. Impurity, gone. So a little bit of imagery there. Um, verses 8 and 9. He says, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. So again, he adds this request for restoration. He desires again to feel joy, to to feel this gladness because these sins have penetrated to his very bones. His entire being feels the weight of this situation, of the consequences of what he has done. He's crying out, Lord, Lord, show me mercy. Cleanse me of these sins. I feel so bad. I know the answer is going to be yes. Um, but the prayer continues. Um, and again, right here, I think this is often where we stop in our prayer life when we're confessing. Maybe we, we, we confess our sins and we say, Lord, please forgive me of these sins, these, in, these iniquities that I have done. Okay, you forgive me. Okay, cool, move on. But, but we, we see that the prayer continues here. Um, and in verse 10, uh, David sort of turns, turns a corner here. And he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so again, up until now, the focus has really been on, on, on the past, what I've done. Cleanse me from that. And now he's, he's going to turn the focus to being restored to God. And really, I think, recognizing in, in sports, we talk about how the, the best defense is a good offense, right? And so he, he not only wants God to to cleanse him of sin, but to create in him a pure heart that he might not fall back into those sins again, that he might walk with the Lord faithfully, that his attention may be on God where it is supposed to. Again, not just asking for a clean slate, Lord, give me a clean slate so that I can go out and sin again, and then we'll keep doing this every so often. No, no, he's saying, Lord, I need a, I need a, a new heart, a clean heart and a right spirit. Um, this word for create here is similar to wording from Genesis, um, to God's creative power, speaking to that this is going to require a divine inter- intervention by God to create this new heart and this new spirit within him. 
Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Um, this is another one that can kind of raise some, some alarm bells as we read through it. What do you mean take your Holy Spirit from me? Is this speaking to we can lose our salvation, that, that God's going to pull his Holy Spirit from believers? And, and it's, it's obviously really important that we remember what the author would have intended. Now, we, we have a, a fuller picture of the story. Um, we know that, that following Jesus' death and resurrection, um, that at Pentecost he said, I'm gonna, when I go away, I'm going to send a helper who's going to come. We see that uh, at the, the moment of Pentecost, that, that from now on, believers are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit um, working inside of us to, to convict us and to, to guide us. Um, but again, that, that was not the case with David. He, he was, was not aware of that at this time. This is about a thousand years before that. So a couple, couple possible meanings. Um, first is simply that, that the, the Old Testament follower of God would have, would have recognized um, that it's a reference to God, that God is spirit. Um, and so, uh, you know, not, not wanting God to remove himself from us. Next is 33. We, we sort of see an example of this as Moses is crying out to God in response to the situation with the golden calf. The, the Israelites have sinned and he's coming before God and appealing to God, don't take your presence from us. Don't, don't blot us out. Um, remain with us. And so that, that's possible, just generic idea. Um, more, more specifically, it could be that David also has seen um, from the example of Saul, the prior king, who was rejected by God. We know Saul um, did not did not follow the Lord. He did not obey. Um, and as a result, First Samuel 15, one, once the, the kind of the final straw, he's called to wipe out the Amalekites. He does not uh, do this. And the Lord sends Samuel, the prophet, to anoint David. Spirit rushes on him. And we know that, that he leaves Saul, that the spirit is taken from Saul. And, and David would have seen again firsthand how this looked. Because we see from that point on, Saul is, is really tormented. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 14 says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented of this, t- tormented him. Excuse me. And so again, he would have seen this firsthand. David was often called to come in and play the liar, um, to, to uplift Saul's spirit. We see Saul really spiral into fear, um, wickedness, d- depression, all, all these kind of things as a result of, of his sin and the Lord departing from him. And so that, that could also be what, what he's re- referring to here is, Lord, I've seen how that looks. Please do not do that to me. Please do not take your spirit from me. Please remain with me and restore me. Um, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So again, this, this kind of parallels um, verse 10 as he continues the thought about needing to be restored. Again, a lot of these are, are somewhat repetitive and kind of um, bring up the, the same ideas. But again, he wants to have a willing spirit. He's not just seeking to be cleansed and move on. He wants to feel the joy of a healthy relationship with God, being in right relationship there and to avoid sinning in the future. Verse 13 through 15, um, the next section of your notes, point for number four, proclaiming God's goodness is the proper response to his mercy. Proclaiming God's goodness is the proper response to his mercy. 
In verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your way. So as a response of all of this, as a response of you doing this, being merciful, restoring me, and giving me a clean, clean heart and a willing spirit, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Um, he will be able to go out as a result of this and teach others about God's mercy. Hey, everyone, God, I, I messed up. But God has shown me mercy, and he can do the same for you. This is what he does. He is loving and he is merciful if we call on him. David recognizes uh, that he can do this. It's his responsibility to do this. And I think it's the same with us. Uh, this is our responsibility. Um, we, we talk about our, our testimonies, how God has called us, how God has saved us, um, that we go out from there and are able to proclaim, let me tell you about this good God who has... Sh- who has shown me mercy, who has forgiven me, because he can do the same to you. Um, I, I think, again, sometimes we lean towards, well, you know, I don't have any major screw-ups in my life. I don't have a really cool um, uh, uh, testimony of, of how God came to me, um, so I don't really have anything to speak to. This. And, that, and that's wrong, right? That is wrong. We all have a testimony to share. We all are sinners in need of, of a forgiving and loving God. And so we ought to come before our brothers and sisters and, and share these stories. Um, even more specifically, for, for believers, we, we can speak to specific situations and how God has restored us. Um, how often have we been encouraged by a brother or sister who has gone through the same situation that, we, that we're going through or through the same mess up that we have and they've been able to speak to the Lord is going to work through this. The Lord forgives and he will restore you. So again, that's David's cry here um, and our responsibility as well. Um, verse 14 and 15 it says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So you see a little bit of the, the same ideas here, but... It's also where we see probably the most specific reference to, to David's actions, right? He refers to his blood guiltiness, literally meaning that he is guilty of bloodshed here. Um, and of course, that's speaking to the, the situation with Uriah and orchestrating that. He's orchestrated it. Um, he is re- responsible for that. And then he reiterates this idea that when God delivers him and shows mercy to him, he's going to respond by singing by, by, by not just not just speaking to these truths, but by singing God's praises aloud. And what other response is there to such great news and such great restoration? Um, so that is his response. Verses 16 and 17. But you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Again, I don't have a point in your notes for this section because, again, I think it somewhat reiterates uh, some of his, his prior points. And, but, but in verse 16, David's not trying to minimize the ritual laws here of, of what God has given to the Israelites. Again, we know that David loved God's law, um, so this certainly would have been part of it. But rather, he's pointing, pointing out that, that God does not delight merely in the outer actions, right? Just doing these sacrifices just going to church, just doing X is, is not what is pleasing to him. Those, those are, are things. 
What matters is coming before him with a broken and contrite heart, uh, desiring a true heart of, of thankfulness and praise. A contrite, of course, speaking to this, this idea of uh, when we express remorse or penitence, that we, we are affected by, by, by the guilt of sins, that is what matters. That we come before him and say, oh, what a wretched sinner I am. Lord, have mercy on me. And again, these actions, when our heart is right, the actions will, will follow. Okay, and so not, not the, the other way around. And so important that we have that, that right heart. Of course, we see um, Jesus does this, going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees many uh, times over this same issue. Not just giving to the poor, he you know, calls out not just giving to the poor out of, out of desire to obey God, but, but really are doing it for, for attention, to get recognition from others, not out of a desire to obey God, to give back from what he's blessed them with, not having that, that right heart. And so he challenges them on that. So again, what pleases God here is a, a convicted heart that not only recognizes sin, but hates it. Hates it and wants to do away with it to, to be in right relationship with God. Come to the last couple of verses, verses 18 and 19. It says, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bowls will be offered to your altar. Um, and the point there is that the point number five, the psalmist asks God to prosper Jerusalem. Um, it, kind of interesting, what, what, what to do with the, these last couple of verses? Because it seems a, a, like a surprising turn here, kind of a different point than, than what's been, been going on here. We see a a cry for the restoration of Zion, the hill in which Jerusalem was built. Um, a couple possible considerations for, for what's going on here. Um, it's possible that, that David, if, if in fact this is David here writing, um, that he may have been considering how his sin is affecting the community. He not only is, is considerate of his own relationship with the Lord, but also the relationship of the community and ensuring that right worship is going on um, Potentially be mindful that, that how his sin is going to affect um, the, the community around him. Um, another possible uh, understanding of, of this section, actually a lot, a lot of the commentaries uh, were suggesting that this may have actually not been written by David, but at a later time. Um, the evidence for that is, is that what it's referencing here, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, um, appears to be referring to uh, the situation that the Israelites were in, in the, during the exile, um, when the Babylonians come in, destroy the city, they're taken away. And so there's this cry for, we want to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, we want to restore the temple that we might worship there again. Um, further evidence could, could be that, um, you know, again, if, if this is in fact a model for prayer um, for future followers of God, that, that it wouldn't be out of too far out of, out of the ordinary for some verses to be added to it. Not 100% sure either way. Um, but, but, but the fact that the psalm, again, as a model, it seems that it's possible that it could be an addition to David's original prayer. So that, that's Psalm 51. Um, again, not only written for David's response to his sins, but to serve as a model for us, how we approach the Lord. Now, we know, again, that we have, a, a, like I said, a more complete picture of the story. Um, we understand how it's possible that a just and righteous God can be merciful and gracious to sinners. And, of course, that being, we look at Jesus Christ and what, what he did 
for us. And in Romans 3, Paul's addressing this truth. And, and he, he starts by talking about how no, he's been talking about how there's no one righteous. No, no one who is without sin. And so Romans 3.22 says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over since the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so again, we, we understand that when we, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe that he's the son of God, come down from heaven, he lived the perfect life that we could not live, he took our sins upon the cross, dying not because he was deserving, but taking our sins there, that now if we believe in him, we can receive forgiveness of our sins. As we see, Christ's blood is put over us and God passes over our sins. He sees Christ's righteousness instead of our sin. So that can ask us, right? Okay, so if we're sitting here and we're believed today, so if I've already been saved, why do I need to ask for forgiveness? I've already been forgiven. I've already been justified. So what's the point? And John, John Piper, I think, has, has a helpful quote kind of speaking to this and, and our, our need to ask God of this. He says, The cross is not the reason we don't ask. The cross is the basis of our confidence that the answer will be yes. I'll read that again. The cross is not the reason we don't ask. The cross is the basis of our confidence that the answer will be yes. We come before God asking for this forgiveness and knowing that the answer is yes. It's, it's there. He's ready for us. He's waiting for us to ask for this. First John 1, 9 and 10 also speaks to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make his, him a liar and his word is not in us. So again, if we confess this, the, the forgiveness is there. Even for David, right? One of the big... The big sins that we consider. Murder, right? He's murdered. He's committed adultery. He's abused this, this power that he has as king, and yet God has shown him mercy and forgiveness. I have a couple or a few summary points on the, the backside of, of your notes. I want to go through those. Um, the first one there is that this is a model for daily prayer. Again, not just the big sins. It's a model for daily prayer, not just the big sins. And one of the ways that we see this is in um, the Lord's Prayer, when, when God is giving, excuse me, Jesus is giving the example for how we ought to pray, He says, "Pray then like this: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil." So He's speaking to this daily action, and we know this is important because we sin every day, right? We, when we confess that daily, we are continually recognizing this need for God. Continually recognizing that, but also rejoicing. It's a continual rejoicing because, again, we know that the answer is yes. We know that we have a Savior who has loved us and who has freely offered this gift to us. And that's why it's crucial that this be a daily model of prayer. Next point, a penitent heart 
is a characteristic of mature followers of Jesus. Again, it's not a psalm for the new believer who's been hit with the weight of his or her past sins. Okay, wow, I'm, I'm feeling the weight of that. I'm, I'm just now coming to, to the Lord, come to know the Lord, um, and now I need to read this. Now, this is this is also um, the the heart of the attitude that we also should take, even if we've been believers for years, decades, however long. And we see different examples of this in Scripture. Obviously, we're seeing David here, right? David's a good example of this. Um, a man who was, was after God's own heart, but, but messed up, and we see him respond. Um, Isaiah responds similarly. Um, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees a vision of the Lord, and he responds by saying, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So again, having that recognition, the significance there. And then, of course, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who... Um, did so many mighty, mighty things that the Lord worked in him in so many mighty ways. Um, author of, of much of the, the new, the, the epistles we have in the New Testament. And at 1 Timothy 1.15, he, he, he refers to himself, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Um, NIV says the worst, right? I, I recognize, I know my sin. I'm, I consider myself the worst of sinners. And of course, we know Paul also dealing with, with these things. Part of the persecution of Stephen um, supported that, that murder, and yet God worked through him mightily. Uh, next point, to receive forgiveness and cleansing, we must humbly ask for forgiveness and cleansing. Kind of related to the, to the previous point, but Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we learned only the penitent man will pass. And so crucial that we have that heart uh, before the Lord. We do this humbly because we know we cannot save ourselves. We know it's by grace that we've been saved, not a result of our own works, so that we may not boast. Um, and so that's why it's important that we're coming before God humbly, recognizing our sin, recognizing the, that we are undeserving of this forgiveness, and yet we receive it. And we respond in joy there. Um, Joshua, during, during uh, the worship song portion of, of today's worship, uh, mentioned the Luke 18, 9 through 14 passage and the parable that Jesus is, is speaking to here, which is a good example um, of what this looks like. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give thanks to all I get, or give tithes to all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So may our heart be that of the tax collector. We'll go through these quickly. You know, we're pretty short on time. Uh, godly grief is good and leads to repentance. So again, we, we can feel how, how grieved David is as a result uh, of his sins. Um, and this can be a little confusing to us because we know, well, there's now no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to feel that guilt. And I think there's, there's different types of guilt that we're talking about here. Um, Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians 7, 
um, 9 through 10. He's talking to the church in Corinth and basically points to how they were grieved as a result of their sin and it led to repentance. I mean, so that's the type of grief we're talking about here. The, the, The grief that comes from recognizing the weight of our sin, but that we no longer have to bear it. That we can come before God and receive forgiveness there at the cross. Last point, the Christian life should be characterized by wrestling and rejoicing. By wrestling and rejoicing. Uh, again, we know Christ has died for our sins, but often we, we, we approach it as I prayed a prayer when I was a child or as a teenager or as an adult. Um, I confessed that I was a sinner in need of saving. Now I have my fire insurance. I'm good. Um, but this is not at all the example that we see uh, in Scripture. Um, that There's a wrestling that goes on. That this inner battle between the sin nature that we were born with and the Holy Spirit working in us, convicting us of this sin. Um, and Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 7. Uh, he says, I, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not do is what I keep on doing. Again, speaking to this this continual wrestling that we need to have with our sin. Um, We've been forgiven of this immense debt. Our response should not be to go out and pile on more debt. For all you Dave Ramsey people, we we totally get this, right? Um, You... you, Right, the response for people who are part of, of uh, that, that series is, I'm out of debt, I'm never going back to it again. It's not, I'm out of it, now let me go get some more credit cards, right, and let's, let's get back to this. No, the response is, I'm never going back to that again. I've, I felt what that is like, how that affects me, and I'm not going back to it. I think that's just kind of a fun example of, of how this looks. That we respond in thankfulness, Christ, you have forgiven me, forgive me, you have put a new heart in me. I don't want to return to those old ways. I do not want to return to that sin. Lord, help me. And so, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to fight this battle against sin, but fight it with courage, because we know that the battle has already been won. Um, we'll call the worship team up if they're all already up here. Excellent. Um, <laughs> so sneaky. Um, I want to respond with a song. Um, so we're going to sing, Lord, I Need You, as a response to to this passage which we have studied.